Star Trek, the nerdy frontier. These are the discussions of the Good Time Society. Their continuing mission to explore each episode, to seek out new topics and ridiculous observations, to boldly watch what they've already watched before. And we've returned for episode two, The Naked Now. Hi, Becca. Hi, Xander. How you doing? I'm feeling really naked now. (laughs) And you can be. This is definitely the horniest episode that I remember. I remember watching this one as a kid, and holy cow, when Beverly Crusher can actually undo the front of her uniform, that was was burned into my memory. (laughs) (laughs) Do you think they made a special uniform just to do that, or can they all unzip in that way? The earliest uniforms were... uh, unzipped in the front it looks like and I think in the first two seasons or so they were that way and then as we talked in the previous episode they eventually fixed those uniforms because they were too spandexy I believe yeah they went from this uniform which is basically one piece to a two piece uniform a top and a bottom and this was one that they had like a zipper that went all the way down sort of like a jumpsuit because they were designing sort of like astronaut suits for comfort that sounds sexy AF (laughs) so this episode the naked now the enterprise goes and explores a ship that is monitoring a star that is about to go into like a white dwarf statuses. Is that right? Red super giant star is turning into a white dwarf. Must be monitored by the SS Seal Kofsky. <laughs> Valiant try. I mean, I don't think anybody says it uh, consecutively the correct way or any way throughout the episode. Sukovsky? Sukovsky? <laughs> Yeah, and all of a sudden, Wesley develops like a Russian accent out of nowhere. Wait, when was this Russian accent you speak of? It was towards the end, but he was like, I, like I'm repulsing this thing and we'll make contact with the Sarkovsky. It's like, oh, Wesley, why? Don't get me started on Wesley. I have some key things to say to him and about him, about his behavior. Well, quote unquote, intoxicated. But Jake, what happened in this episode? So while they're trying to investigate the loss of contact with the Shaiskovsky? No, Sayulskovsky? I don't know. <laughs> Both are acceptable. Uh, when At they open communications, yes. the bridge crew hears a woman speaking in a very seductive voice. Something about, so she says something about, do you have any boys over there or something like that? Or hot men? I'm sorry, she says, how many pretty boys do you have? Send over all the pretty boys. And we got a classic Riker look to um, Picard, the one that really he kind of gives his eyebrow thing. It's the signature move of Riker when he doesn't understand what's going on. You really nailed that, Jake. (laughs) Oh my gosh, our listeners cannot see the webcams that we see. Uh, but you have a great like, Riker look. We got to get a photo of that. We also, uh, speaking of sort of production-wise, get to see a recurring theme uh, from the camera department in this Riker-Picard 2 shot that happens, where uh, you see P- uh, Picard sort of in the front and shorter, and you see number one behind him and, and up, and they're both sort of looking at the view screen. That becomes like a classic shot that you'll see throughout the whole series forever. Riker's definitely strutting a lot in this episode, too. Like, when he's doing the those stances he's he's almost modeling in his pose it's very compelling everyone is strutting <laughs> yeah i think these uniforms are very very uncomfortable and they were trying to find out how do i look good while wearing a spandex one piece everybody looks good in a spandex onesie don't lie that's true so the crew of the tchaikovsky <laughs> let's go with tchaikovsky <laughs> they all kind of lose their minds and it looks like they explode the the hatch into space and get not sucked out as data will later point out but blown out 
A very important point. Uh, Data, how about you go blow yourself out? Uh, I do not compute, Commander. <laughs> yeah, and this is a throwback to The Naked Time, which is an original series uh, episode, and one that's very important to me because think the same sort of disease happens with the crew of the original Enterprise, and Sulu takes off his shirt and, and is sweaty and fencing, and it was it's great. You should go and see just that clip, if anything else. A couple things that I want to say about this episode as we're getting into what the plot was, which is everybody's sort of intoxicated almost uh, and in an infectious disease that makes people act as if they have imbibed alcohol. But for real, all these people took Molly. MDMA is what's (laughs) happening here, undoubtedly. Yeah. I mean, there's more clothes on the floor than food and drink on that ship. Like, it's pretty much an orgy over there rather than anything else. Absolutely. And I don't know anybody who acts that way on alcohol uh, without, without, how do you get to that point before you've already puked and fallen asleep? Yeah, it feels like definitely this was a college StarCraft yeah. Yeah. All ages. Uh, each StarCraft has an age group. Uh, it's like a cruise, like a party cruise kind of thing, but in space. I mean, even Data says this has the indications of what humans would call a wild party. <laughs> exactly. In the shot where they first uh, teleport over to the Tchaikovsky and <laughs> they're starting to walk around and hmm, these hallways feel really familiar. I wonder why. Uh, budget. And then the first shot of them in the hallway, there's a turned over chair in the foreground and it's got like some white granny panties laid across it. Yes, this was the idea of like something salacious that you would find in like this veritable den of sin of a starship. (laughs) When Jordy goes in to discover the frozen crew, uh, they're all laid out in semi-naked state, but no one's really touching. It felt like kind of a masturbation party, right? Also a thing. (laughs) So there are a couple of things that, that stand out to me in this episode specifically, talking about like overall themes. One that I don't really care for in Next Generation is this, the Gene Roddenberry's approach of these characters live in a society that, that provides everything for them, so no, nobody is flawed because there's no reason to be flawed. If there's some sort of weird desire or, or passion or something going on, it must be from an outside alien influence. And so this is really highlighting that, that there, there's nothing wrong with this crew ever, but if there is, it has to be under the influence of something weird or different. Um, so that's one I don't really care for, but you'll see that again and again. Um, but uh, the, the way that they sort of skillfully dance around this, I know that they wanted to make the show more sexy. They wanted it to be primetime, edgy TV, but they still had this young uh, character. So were children watching this show? Was it something you would watch with the family? So this is them sort of straddling that line of, no, and they can do anything in this debauchery because it's part of an alien plot or an infectious disease or, or something like that. There's a built-in excuse. Yeah, they're saying sex is bad, but at the same time, we all want to see it, right? We're going to do this. Here we are seeing Beverly unzip that top and Picard do his little skip step and Data just leaning. Do they say sex is bad in this? No, and it's just sort of like a after-school special kind of way. It is sex positive. Uh, for example, Tasha Yara hooking up with Data <laughs> and then doing that walk of shame in the bridge later on. That that felt like a sex positive experience, but just the whole underlying idea of you will die if you party too much. Eh. I mean, she does straight up look at Data and go, 
it didn't happen. (laughs) (laughs) If we're talking about this, we should talk about her line when she seduces him and she references her monologue that we talked a lot about in the previous episode. And she, I was warned by a friend who recently rewatched the whole series that she mentions the rape gangs on her home planet. That is some heavy stuff to just toss out there. Do we want to deal with that? What, What kind of thing were they trying to say about Yara's backstory here? Yeah, well, with this, too, um, it's bold doing this on the second episode of a series, but I can see why they would want to do something like this. It's a great way to get out exposition and secrets of a plot of a character that it's beyond their control. They they just let it slip, or, and this is a great way to sort of get those little plot points in and show the range of the character, because all that we've seen so far is this militaristic um, sort of society that's been set up with Picard and Dr. Crusher and number one. And now we see kind of the sexy human side uh, of them. Um, and, and you wouldn't get to see that otherwise. And what they were doing, I think, with Yar was trying to establish this dark story that would have no place in this futuristic utopia. But because she's under this influence, she's able to sort of talk about it and let it out in a way that she normally wouldn't in like a counseling scene that wouldn't be fraught with tears or a big emotional yeah, sort of break. Yeah, this episode, like the Naked Time in the original original series comes super early in the TV show. So I think it's meant mm-hmm. to uh, introduce the characters like kind of wants or like desires because we go, exactly. we go a little bit over Jordy's um, uh, blindness and wanting to see, although I don't remember that coming up much later, but we'll find out. And then also a little bit of Tasha Yar and there's a little bit more development of the relationship between Troy and Riker and then Crusher and Picard. I want to say more about Yar. Yes, yes, please. Uh, I really enjoyed the sex positivity of being able to articulate your sexual wants and needs, which is such a forward-thinking modern idea. But here it is in whatever year this is, and it, it's really empowering. I like that it came out exactly as you're saying, not with tears and counseling, but here's what I need, a gentle touch. Yeah, that's what I like, and I love it. I'm so here for it. I had heard a uh, rumor, too, that originally the uh, pairing was supposed to be Tasha Yar and Jordy, that Jordy was supposed to make like sexual advances towards Tasha, but they scrapped that idea because it, it felt weird coming from like another d- department and and the lieutenant versus someone in the head of security. So there was a power imbalance on both sides that they weren't comfortable with. And the, But the decision to go with Data is one that is still questioned to this day because it might be uh, the beginnings of something that they were trying to say about his personhood, but using her as an agent to do that, it's, it's a little iffy. I'm all about his personhood and the <laughs> fact that she made sure it worked. Now we all fully know functional. and we can all ship it fully functional. So a little bit more about this episode. Gene Roddenberry. No, wait, 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 wait. Jake, quit trying to move on. I, we got to talk about her outfit, though. <laughs> well, the it's great. <laughs> okay, so she's wearing like full belly exposed. And let's talk about those lower abs. Those are the real hard ones to get. And they are on point. She's got kind of like a harem look going on. Very flowy, dark colors. 
and she really rocks it. A single curl uh, plastered to the center of her forehead. It's genius. Nails Being it. so intoxicated, she really did herself up quite nicely. Like, that hair is flawless. <laughs> and you know that outfit was not easy to put on, especially if you're drunk, because it just looked like a series of wraps, and I don't understand how anyone could put that on. And she was doing, like, raised leg uh, crunches, like, at least for the past half hour before she came in, right? <laughs> oh, absolutely. And uh, another argument that this is MDMA and not alcohol, because hyper-focused. Final thought jumping off what you said, Xander, is if we didn't go with Data because of, you know, the android ability to decide whether or not he's involved in this sexual encounter, I just want to say Deanna Troy would not have been a a bad matchup for me with Lieutenant Yar. I would be very there for that. When she went to her quarters and said, ooh, you're such a good dresser. Do you want to dress me? Right? They were giving all the signs, especially with the way that Yara was dressed for the time in the 90s. Like, this is queer coding for sure. And then they just backed off from it. We all wanted it. Well, Troy kind of, you know, she's got a thing for Riker. She kind of didn't show interest, but Yara put it out there. And there's so many other, like, female crew members that she could have had interactions with. But whatever. That's that's another day. Well, uh, interestingly, regarding the sex scenes in here, uh, DC Fontana, who was assigned to write this originally by Gene Roddenberry, uh, stated that, quote, while the script was given a good reaction by almost everyone, the Roddenberry pattern of dealing with scripts befell it. After a staff returned to the official second draft of the script, they were not allowed to touch it again. No matter how good a script appeared to be, it would be rewritten by Roddenberry. If possible, scenes of a sexual content would be inserted into the script. When two such scenes were put into the Naked Now, in addition to other scenes which I felt debased the female characters of the series, I put my sentiments into a frankly worded memo of comment on the script. My comments were ignored. Weird. Oh, snap. That's heavy. I've never heard that before. Yeah, I mean, I think... A lot of the cast didn't love this episode. Uh, Jonathan Frakes, who plays Riker, felt in particular was a little bit uh, demeaning and silly. But he noted later on that uh, the writers in the early seasons took a lot more risks than they did in the later seasons, which this episode is definitely a risk. Yeah, and I think that this is the same thing that Star Wars kind of runs into in that what charms so much about Star Wars is the campiness and the the frivolity. And when you take that away, then like what they did with like the prequels or something like that, where it gets more serious, it sort of loses its footing. So I appreciate what they were trying to do here in making a more lighthearted tone uh, for, the, for the series in general, saying like, it's not all going to be military and serious. We can have fun with it too, but it wasn't quite the right way to do it. I will say when Wesley finally gets to go to a, a raging party when he's older, he's not going to be the life of it because everybody's going to get drunk and having fun and he's going to be moving furniture with his tractor beam. <laughs> right? And people will be like, Wesley, just stop. <laughs> And that's where Jordy goes when he first gets uh, intoxicated. He's like, okay, where do I want to have the most fun? I'll go hang out in Wesley's court. Yeah, I thought that was very telling of Jordy's personality. But a few more things about this DC Fontana. Just the fact that as a female writer in Hollywood in the 90s, she went by her first two initials. There's a reason for that. People see a woman's name on a script at that time then there's there's a preconceived notion that goes along with it. That's why so many writers do the same. J.K. Rowling. Well, actually, in the episode's writing credits, DC Fontana has a pseudonym, if you can believe it. It's J. Michael Bingham, so even more male. It makes sense, and it's sad to say, but, I mean, that practice still occurs today. Very frustrating, but also, what a badass. And honestly, uh, I respect that she didn't like this more sexual scenes added to the script, but I was here for it. (laughs) 
I'm a little concerned about the lack of social distancing. <laughs> I mean, Crusher pretty quickly determines that there's uh, something contagious going on. And people are just running around everywhere. I was waiting. Uh, I wanted to bring it up that this is, as we're recording this, the reason that we are not in the same room is because we're in the height of the coronavirus. And this just was so topical to that. The social distancing aspect. I'm sorry if people came to listen to this podcast to get away from it, to escape, to not talk about it, but we have to talk about the modern parallels of Jordy being patient zero and watching each person that was infected as we hear the sprinkle of sand going through (laughs) 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 something to signify it has passed on. That was really cool. Uh, It also made me notice how much the crew of the Enterprise touches other crew's necks. Like, it tend to be a lot of intimate touching to get to that point because everybody's uniform covers so much of their skin. Particularly when Riker, this is towards the end when Beverly Crusher gets infected from Riker, which it did feel there was a little bit of scenes that had been reordered in the edit. Uh, but Riker just walks into the doctor's office and places his hand around her neck as she's sitting down. It was the most awkward moment of touching that was so forced. I did want to talk about this, though, because it is a topic that comes up in discussion sometimes. And because it's Star Trek, people go into the minutiae of everything. But some of it kind of makes sense in that when you've developed a utopian society that is on a starship, you're away from nature and physical contact a lot of the time. So because everybody's so clean and we're using the sonic showers and beaming in and out for diseases and stuff it is said that there might be more than normal like physical contact between crewmates just to keep each other as a form of intimacy and keep each other sort of grounded in their their humanity in a sense is that the star trek fan community justifying that <laughs> i right? mean yes and uh like it kind of justifies later on too you, you just see people being more intimate than they would in like an office environment which is what it reads as uh you know in space what is a sonic shower for those of us that don't know myself included so uh i think i think it starts in next generation they just decided that they use sonic showers in their quarters instead of like water showers so it uses the vibrations of sound to keep you clean i guess it's techno babble it's in the steel dossier yeah 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 (laughs) so you go into like a closet with some intense dubstep and then you're clean I don't think, I don't know if it's ever shown uh, what a sonic shower looks like. No, I mean, bathroom stuffs are not shown in anything that I've seen yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, how do you get more water in space? Well, the replicators. <laughs> they just change molecules into yeah. water, right? Yeah, so it would drain down. Sure, but conservation should still matter. And it does, so we use sonic showers. <laughs> also, uh, Becca, I don't know if you've noticed this particular bit of grooming in Starfleet, but have you noticed the sideburns yet? Tell me more about these sideburns. Once I tell you, you won't be able to unsee it. But any character that is male presenting that has sort of short hair, uh, their sideburns will be pointed. This was a compromise between, uh, from the original series, Gene Roddenberry wanted uh, all of these guys to have like crazy alien haircuts. And the actors were like, no, I have to go out into the real world and and live my life. You can't do that. So the compromise was pointy sideburns. Uh, And so anybody in Starfleet that has short enough hair where you can see their sideburns they'll have points in all of star trek so keep keep a lookout for it that is incredible and i'm wondering why yar can't have them she's got short hair right okay so uh 
Jake, get us back on track with the episode progression here. So now Jordy has infected other crew members, including Tasha Yar, and things spread from there. And apparently Data can be infected as well, as we're soon to learn, because of his positronic matrix. And he also he also says to Picard later that he has uh, chemicals inside of his body, biochemical processes, uh, and even asks, if you cut me, do I not bleed? And I don't think- Oh, no, 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 no. He says, if you prick me, do I not leak? Do I not leak? Did he say that? Yes, it's the best. Oh, shit, I heard bleed. Well, that's so much better. That fixes it. It really does. So yeah, the, the whole thing starts spreading amongst the ship. Wesley gets into engineering and turns his little party tractor beam into a repulsor field, which shuts off anybody of importance from getting inside. So he's stuck with assistant chief engineer Shinoda? Is that his name? <laughs> yeah, yeah. This guy was not working to begin with. He just left a child at his post. <laughs> yeah. He, he, he was second in command and he's like, I have to go. There's a bunch of other engineers around, but sure, Wesley, you can take care of this. And it's actually amazing to me that Starfleet Protocol has these chips that can be pulled out of the engine system that can pretty much shut down everything. And they don't label the chips. Label your (laughs) chips? That was ridiculous. If one of them's out of place, you can't move the ship. So again, we're working with a technological understanding from the 90s, so it's still CD-ROMs and floppy disks uh, as the form of data transference. Uh, But you'll see, uh, from this episode specifically, we'll see some shuffling in the command structure between the main characters and departments, uh, and how things are run. Uh, So you'll start seeing that right now, because of these incidents, exactly what you were talking about. And there's our first instance of a yak back being presented uh, in Star Trek, which is the device that lets uh, Wesley replicate Picard's voice, which actually becomes a deep fake pretty quickly, too. So that's already a little foreshadowing. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Very terrifying. I want to talk about this engineer. Um, I don't know her name. The woman with blonde hair who is the first in the engineering department. And she comes back. Everything takes her a really long time. Can I plug this back in? Yeah, but it's going to take hours. Can I put these floppy disks back in their slots? Yeah, but that's going to be at least three hours. And another thing, uh, talking about technology and the understanding at the time, was when Riker asked Data to do a Google search. And (laughs) Data says it will take hours. (laughs) Yeah. That's another facet of Star Trek that I do recall, and I bet we will notice more and more, much like the sideburns, is that most plot devices to stretch into the episode are all time-based technobabble. So it's like, okay, we can repair the engines, we can augment the sensors, et cetera, et cetera, but it's going to take blank hours. And then Picard will say, well, what can you do to shorten that? And they're like, well, we could reroute this to make it a little less time. (laughs) That's like advancement in the plot they're so forward thinking in so many of the technological things like of course we talked about last time how basically they invented the iPad but didn't know that you would have your own instead of passing yours to everybody and in this situation they've kind of like realized they need a fast way to look through everything in the library and that is data literally skimming it all with his eyes but our (laughs) technology has become such that we need everything instantaneously and that's something they didn't predict or maybe they did but that you know what it works better from the plot if we just need to fill time a little bit here 
So a uh, quick uh, instance about Chief McDougal. Uh, that is a direct callback to uh, Scotty in uh, not just the original series, but also the movies, because he constantly would give Kirk some time of how long things would take. And they make a nod to this over and over. And he constantly says, like, you always tell him longer than it actually takes, because then you're a mil- miracle worker. Uh, but if you take if you take longer than you told them, then you're a failure. So it's a nod, I think, to this with the way that Chief Chief McDougal is acting, especially as like the only sober person on the ship. Yeah, nobody touches Chief McDougal. <laughs> yeah, poor Chief McDougal doesn't get touched. <laughs> I want to see a post-credit scene with Chief McDougal just looking sadly in a mirror and stroking her face in the mirror and saying, "I'll touch you." Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, but yeah, and then yeah, exactly what you were saying with data taking so long because they were working off of what were they were calling diagnostics in um, and that would be like a, a scan of what everything is happening on the ship. They were doing essentially like diagnostics, but with their libraries because search engines were at they existed but weren't to the prevalence that they are today. So this was about how long it would take in the '90s to search through that sort of database. Wasn't there one called Fetch? It had like a dog on it. It was Fetch, Hotbot, AltaVista, Google was still there. It was all of them. Only one could prevail. So now we progress forward and much of the ship is infected. Almost everybody. In fact, I think the only people that we see not get really infected in this episode are like Worf and maybe Chief McDougal, right? Mm -hmm. Surprisingly, Worf was never infected. Well, and that goes to see like, oh, maybe nobody touches Worf and with good reason. (laughs) Well, I think it might have been hard also to display the Klingon in a sexual way because they probably didn't want to explore that yet, which they do in later episodes, as I recall, which is very aggressive. (laughs) But uh, they explore hate fucking. They explore the uh, hate attraction, which is kind of what it does. There's a lot of growling in uh, the mating of the the courtship of Klingons. Into it. (laughs) I like Data and Picard have, I think, probably the funniest moments in this episode. I laughed out loud multiple times. Data's entrance to the bridge after uh, he, after his sex scene with Yar was <laughs> leaning up against the turbo lift door. And then his little wobble all the way down was so wonderful. The pratfall that he did trying to lean on something that wasn't there is so corny, and yet it still got me. His physical comedy is brilliant. Remind me of the actor's name. He is, I think, my favorite actor in this series. At least right now, He's uh, I'm calling dibs. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. The thing is, with Patrick Stewart, Gates McFadden, and Brent Spiner, so that was Crusher, Picard, and Data, all three of them were classically trained actors that were, were incredible on the stage and, and in the screen otherwise, but you know they were pigeonholed into these stoic characters when all three of them have amazing comedic chops, and it really shows in this episode, and I think it was smart of them to do that in the second episode to draw people in. Fun fact, Beverly Crusher, uh, Gates McFadden, was given this episode for her audition for the role. The installment gave her uh, uh, the mistaken impression that Crusher was a comedic character. Oh my god, I had no idea! (laughs) Yeah, that's really crazy. And you know, I actually, Gates McFadden, I don't remember standing out from my childhood, but like I like her more and more as I've been watching this. And in this episode, I think she plays the most convincing drunk of all of them. When her and Picard are trying to remember what they're supposed to be focused on in sickbay, uh, she's not really hamming it up at all. And neither is he, although he does have that wonderful little jaunt when he walks into the sickbay. 
But both of them are very like, hmm. That's interesting that you say that Beverly Crusher did not stick with you as a child because she is all I remember. I have always wanted to be Beverly Crusher. And I think I've really shaped part of my image around those Crusher vibes. I loved I loved the character of her because she goes on. She has some of the coolest solo um episodes that I remember, including some very Twilight Zone-esque episodes. Yeah. Uh, but I just don't remember her performances standing out, but I can tell that, yeah, she does seem more classically trained like Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner also only does some of the most amazing character work because Data has to do a lot of uh, personality changes throughout different things, as I recall, and he only gets better. It's genius. It's absolutely genius. We were, uh, my band partner, Bonnie, and I, this is a little bit of a tangent, we're lucky enough to go to a, a stage reading of Frankenstein, and it was with Gates McFadden and Brent Spiner and Tim Russ, who plays Tuvok in Voyager, uh, the actress that plays Hoshi in Enterprise. Anyway, they all just stood up and they did this performance of uh, Frankenstein, uh, and they were reading it out loud, and Gates was uh, like a bit part, and so good, and so, so funny. Whoa. Not the size of the actor's parts. It's the actor's parts size is what they say, I think. (laughs) Yep. (laughs) Uh, I want to say also something about the music in this episode really reminded me of the original series. Uh, The symphonies in here are very dun-dun-dun. And a lot of like uh, when the star collapses. By the way, that star collapsed in like a half a second. (laughs) That was insanely quick. It was so fast. Yeah, they were immediately in danger. But a lot of the music there is very cacophonous and foreboding and dreading. And I remember uh, TNG having a lot more kind of synth and spacey and a little bit more ethereal music. So this is this is a little bit of a callback from the original series, as I recall. That's exactly it. You just made me think of a major plot hole, uh, which is if we were... Um, if we knew when we talked to Data earlier that we would have about, you know, 10 minutes to get out of range of this star exploding at any point. So let's just sit here and chill and figure out these dead people on a ship now. And then later they grab the tractor beam to try and pull the ship with the bodies in it away. Uh, why didn't we just do that first? Great questions. That's The answer yeah. is plot. <laughs> Yeah, or maybe, you know, the captain just didn't think of it. it. That could be a part of it. You know, he's not a perfect captain yet. There you go. <laughs> uh, I love it. The music was super notable, and I actually wrote down in my notes when they first find the dead people and Jordy opens the shower and the woman who has the leftover shaving cream freezer stuff from the first episode all over her, <laughs> that uh, there is 18 people all dead dun 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 ad break and I wrote down the dun 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 so it was really notable this this music that had, had changed from the first episode yeah and it switches full on to the soap opera genre even the way the actors are playing it is very soap opera with like soap takes while they wait for the advertisements type of thing but um I, I like the way that they went with the disease in that uh, yes it makes you intoxicated and, and sort of horny but one other effect that they really highlighted was how hot people got it, they were Sweating, and they just made comments about how warm they were. And so what they were, I think, trying to insinuate when they were finding the dead people is that they got so hot, they were trying to cool themselves off. And eventually it was adjusting the life support systems and finally blowing themselves out into space. Oh, you are a genius, Xander. You figured it out. I didn't figure that one out. It makes so much sense now that they really had to open a window. (laughs) Yeah, that's what it was. 
Um, I just found a little note on Memory Alpha about the music of this episode, not to go too far back, but Mm. uh, the episode score uh, for this episode, conductor and composer Ron Jones had a smaller orchestra that ultimately became the norm for the series with 31 players as opposed to 40. Um, He composed two cues that were cut from the finished episode. Needing love was to have underscored the scene where Tasha talks about her feelings, and horny doctor was to have played during the scene between (laughs) Beverly and Picard in the ready room. So he composed a song called Horny Doctor. Yes, of course he does. I want to get a copy of that track for, you know, special time at home. Um, A couple of things. You were talking about uh, certain people's reactions, and it was interesting how different people reacted in different ways. Most people felt sexual, but with Jordy, I guess when they scrapped that that scene with Yar, they took it way the other direction. And Jordy, when he first starts feeling effects, he's laying on the patient bed in the med bay, and he's all sweaty, and he gets really feisty with the bad jokes at Beverly. Like, oh, what? Oh, you gonna come at me? No, did you throw your voice like a ventriloquist? And they're like, no, that's not funny, Jordy. <laughs> yeah, uh, there is a big argument that you can sort of trace throughout the series of Jordy's asexuality. Now, this is asexual, but not aromantic. So Jordy would still crave romantic feelings with someone of maybe the same or opposite genders or or none, meaning like a hologram or something like that. Um, but that uh, that Jordy might be an asexual character. Uh, and so there is arguments that you could see of him maybe discovering that, especially with his partner with Data and sort of that relationship between the two of them. Uh, so it's it's sort of the beginnings of that, I, I, I would say. I really liked the scene. Uh, I thought it was really great acting from him when Jordi and Yara are together and he first passes it to Yara by touching her face. I keep saying Yara, it's Yar. Um, he, he's really getting emotional about the fact that he wants to see like other people and and she says, you see more than I do. And he says, more doesn't mean better. It was a line that really hit me hard. It, it was great. And and you could see some of that costume budget going into his uh, white Oh my gosh, so contacts. that's the first time we see that, right? We didn't see that last episode. I remember being a kid being blown away by... Oh, maybe. We did. Yes, we at did. The, we did. The... We saw uh, he's with Crusher and oh, okay. talking about his pain. Well, those lights on his forehead, I remember being a kid being like, how the hell did they do that? Uh, there's a lot of dermal implants, obviously. There's a lot of practical obviously. effects in this show. When we open up Data's skull as well, very impressive for the time, and doesn't look fake. Yeah, and then uh, this might, I don't know if you have this specific memory, Becca, but back in the day, in the 90s, there was a wave of headbands for little girls that was sort of like satiny and like bunched up. And it was the per- if the gold ones looked perfectly like Jordy's visor. So I would get them and put them on as if I had Jordy's <laughs> visor. Yeah, of course. I had a lot of those headbands and we would play Star Trek all the time. It was like the perfect like toy, just if, just randomly. Everybody wanted to be Jordy because you could do a very clear costume. Exactly, yeah. And then, uh, yeah, and I think uh, going off of how he sort of reacts, it sort of builds his brand of dad humor that we see later on, too. I love it. I'm on board. So the chips, eventually eventually the, uh, the crew manages to figure out what's going on. They inoculate people one by one, and we actually get the chips back in place thanks to Data's speedy hands. And actually, that, that moment I remember being pretty cool, too, because it doesn't look very sped up. It looks pretty real. Like, it doesn't look like the frames are really adjusted or anything like that. Uh, we get out of the way of the ship, or of the explosion of the star, and we make our way off. Uh, the last line, of course, is Riker getting to say... 
engage this time. But again, we end the, we end with another predictable part of these episodes where uh, Picard kind of summarizes very nicely. He says, you know, I think we have a fine crew if we learn to avoid temptation. And he says something about, let's go to our next job. There's very much a very buttoning up of everything in these early episodes. This is following the format of like the monster of the week genre that was happening. You could see it in like Buffy the Vampire Slayer or other serialized sort of fantasy or sci-fi shows that you could turn on the TV, see any episode and kind of get it. Uh, Or if you caught the tail end, you could sort of get a summary and be like, oh, that's what was going on. So many shows and movies throughout all of time have the soliloquy or the book ending with voiceover or the dear audience, you're hearing this. And I really like that they choose to do that with the logs because it makes it very specific to the ship. It's dear diary, but for a captain. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested to hear the crew's report to Starfleet about what went out. Like, (laughs) seriously, what are they going to talk about? Because if Wesley became acting captain and gave everybody promised desserts after every meal like that's got to go in the report over the fact that they almost died over this and he actually did a really great job wesley really (laughs) was the one that bought them the extra seconds that kept everyone alive which is insane how level-headed and practical and manipulative he was when he was in this intoxicated state and i want to talk about some other characters that we haven't really mentioned yet and how they were under intoxication but really wesley's got to go in that report yeah, and then this is the first instance of another trope to keep an eye on, which is Wesley as a savior, which happens frequently. Yeah, he's supposed to be kind of a wonderkind, right? Because yeah. even early on in the episode, Wesley's kind of miffed about not being able to go on the bridge, and he says, Picard won't let me on the bridge. Even though I know everything on there. Yeah, there's nothing on there I don't understand. It's like, woo, you're 15. Yeah. <laughs> so that's that teenage arrogance. But apparently he does, because he just rerouted the power to the tractor beam in a way that Chief Engineer McDougal said would take several hours, right? Let me relate this back to our current world state and the gerontocracy that is going on and just throw out that the kids always have the answers, you know, and we're all, you know, hovering around 30, like maybe we're at that age where we need to be listening to the people on TikTok and another instance where Gene Roddenberry saw the future. (laughs) <laughs> Maybe we need to be listening to the people on TikTok. Yeah, That's right. Like- That's what I said. <laughs> the, the crew of the Enterprise really kind of went along with him, too, because uh, when when Wesley has that force field up and there's those engineers that are kind of staring at it from the other side and they're all standing very awkwardly. I'll put a screenshot of that in the show notes. But there's one crew member who's just kind of standing there stoically looking at everyone like they're crazy. And they're all excited about the idea of like a dessert. Desserts before and after each meal. They took the attitude of a drunk person and just like amplified it and amplified weird aspects of it. It's like when a when a high schooler gets drunk, right? Look, I'm telling you, it is not alcohol. Yeah, you're right. It's Molly. I agree. Oh, good. Uh, I want to talk about two characters that we skimmed over a little bit. Number one, we didn't talk about Deanna Troy, and the major thing going on with her is she had a costume change. She has a low neck onesie, (laughs) and it's pants this time. I'm on board for it. She has a beautiful, ornate hairpiece, which is really, really on point. Down for that. That hairpiece is beautiful. And her big scene was with Riker when she sort of confesses her love to him, says we got to get back together. He ends up picking her up and carrying her off and uh, then not really pursuing that. And that leads into the other person that I had an interesting 
reaction to, Riker seems unaffected. He's sweaty and he pushes through otherwise. He doesn't fall for any of it. He powers through. Beverly Crusher tries to do the same, although a couple sidebars. But you can see the characters that have an extremely strong will. And I would say it goes Riker, Crusher, Picard in that order. Yeah, I think Riker's kind of always a little bit of a horn dog. That's his operating procedure, so he's used to this feeling. <laughs> That's exactly what I was going to say. Right, the thing is, this is a direct response to if you look at content from like the late 80s, the 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 concept of machismo is very much if you're the man in the situation, you take control and and the woman, she's not going to let you know that she likes you. So you got to like force her and you got to take her by like be a man. And so this was very much a stark contrast to that and and showing that Riker, the the sex appeal, one of the sex appeals of the show, really, um, that he's able to restrain himself and act like chivalrous in this environment and not take advantage of someone is really a, a breath of fresh air at the time, which is kind of sad to say. Um, but the general theory is that oh well, Riker is just always at this level of horny, so of course he can deal with it because it's all every day for him. I love that explanation. That is an element of utopia that I think kind of carries over throughout the series is that everybody's pretty self-disciplined for the most part. Even the least disciplined amongst them, like, you know, war for somebody who's reactionary, still knows to follow the code. Militaristic training. Which makes it suck when you're trying to write interesting characters. So I want to talk about a plot hole real quick uh, before we talk about our final reactions, which is there seems to have been a scene omitted because Picard goes into the office with Beverly Crusher and as far as I can tell he had not yet been infected because I was really taken aback that he gets almost one inch from her nose he stands his ground as she gets closer and closer and he does this weird laugh that I had to rewind three times because it was so funny where he goes (laughs) (laughs) the horny chuckle the horny chuckle the horny chuckle (laughs) I love that laugh. <laughs> so uh, this, uh, as far as I understand, this is the way that they were showing Picard coming down with the disease. So you saw it infecting him in real time, where he was trying to add little bits of weirdness into his character, and you saw it gradually change into an infected person. It was a choice. <laughs> Did I miss something, though, about when he initially got infected? It's because Beverly was carrying it. I, I believe in that scene, she had already seen Wesley and come in contact with Wesley and came to tell Picard that Wesley had been infected and that she probably was too. I don't know why she didn't use a communicator, especially as the chief medical officer. You don't want to walk to the bridge. Uh, yeah, you do, because you get to take off your uniform a little bit and get in that ready room because she's ready. Ready room. She was horny on Maine. Yeah. <laughs> So she was infected and bringing the disease to Picard, and you could see Picard slowly succumbing to it, is what I think they were trying to do. I mean, she could have just sent him a communication that's just like, you up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Jake, do you want to ask the final reactions question again? So that's episode two, The Naked Now. What did you guys think of this episode? What are our options? Well, uh, (laughs) your opinion, that's all I want to hear. Would you recommend this to people? Uh, I mean, I know this is the early episode, so we're still trying to find our rhythm, but this one made me laugh a lot, so I really enjoyed it, although I wasn't, like, taking it super seriously. 
Yeah, I think this is a good... I like this episode personally just because I like seeing an actor's range. And especially in a one-episode containment, you can see this whole range. Uh, I, I would recommend this to friends who think that Trek has been too obtuse for them, that they can't quite break through and think that it's not funny. I would use this as an example of like, but watch this one. See? They can goof around and have fun. That happens every once in a while. And it kind of endears you to the characters to go through all of the certain monotonous stuff that happens in in the future. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love this episode. It, just in these first two episodes, we've seen this isn't the space show you think of. The problems they are dealing with are very unconventional. And actually, I was going to watch this late last night, and um, I was trying to talk my husband into watching it with me, and he was like, that's your project. Sorry, I'm, I'm not really interested in watching uh, The Next Generation through with you. And I was like, let me tell you this episode synopsis. And he watched it with me and he loved it. Yeah. So uh, it really is a gateway drug episode, uh, just like the Molly that they all took. <laughs> Stay hydrated, kids, if you take MDNA. <laughs> this episode also doesn't drag at all. Like, it keeps going. There's no boring parts. I, I sometimes remember with Star Trek, there would be a lot of, like, the slow process of them trying to discover what's going on. But we kick right into it and it's really nice. Yeah, I would recommend this episode to my friends, too. I was going to just talk on that, too. This is the big switch from the pacing of the original series into what we go into for more modern storytelling. And what we're used to is this clip. And it starts, that's when they start to develop A plots and B plots so that we can move things along quicker and still things are interesting. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 because I want to leave room for improvement. And I pointed out two plot holes, but really, really strong episode. Really love how we got to know these characters more. And again, seeing Brett... God, I'm never going to remember his... Spiner. Brett Spiner, go at it, and really just that moment when he walks on the bridge is one of my favorites. I, I think it's going to be my favorite of the entire series. We'll see. There are a lot of great moments for Data and Brent Spiner coming up. I give this episode 35 out of 40 isolinear chips. That's fair. I really liked it. Ooh, in order? <laughs> I don't know how to order them. They're not <laughs> All right, so what's up next week? Next week, we're going to be reviewing Code of Honor. Uh, The synopsis for this is, A mission of mercy is jeopardized when a planetary ruler decides he wants an Enterprise officer as his wife. Dun, dun, dun! Cut to advertisement. Uh Uh-oh, arranged marriage? No, thank you. Which officer will it be, too? That's the real question. I'm ready. I can't wait. But you know what? Right now, we're on to our next mission. So are you guys ready? Yeah. Engage. Engage. No. Fuck. I always fuck it up.